Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Well, I know we've got a few visitors here today, and so um, I just want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, Maybe you haven't been here for a while, maybe this is the first time, maybe you've been uh, uh, checking things out. I'm just delighted that we can be together as we begin this series on 1 Corinthians. I've called this sermon a full and messy church. The church in Corinth was a messy church. Sometimes we talk about messy church as something that we do with kids and we want to encourage people to come in as themselves. But I tell you what, this was real mess. As we go through the letter, we see, like we do in today's chapter, divisions, infighting, splits, jostling for power, factions. We see lawsuits among believers. People over here were suing people over here. We see sexual immorality. We, pe- we see people using prostitutes. We see people having improper relationships between in their families. It was a mess. We see confusion about the place of men and women in worship, what people needed to wear, who got to speak, who got to play. We see questions of food sacrificed to idols. We see questions of exclusion and inequality at the Lord's Supper, a misguided understanding of Christian marriage, Christian singleness, questioning of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and overall a lack of love for one another and a lack of holiness in the world. It was a full and messy church. Now I want to give you a sneak peek. This is my house. It wasn't my house yesterday, For some reason, I have photos of the mess of my house on my phone. I think it's because I take photos of them and send them to my sister or my friends and say, oh, no, look what I'm dealing with. Uh, Kitchen, a pile of clean clothes and laundry that the dog has decided to sleep on. When I think about the mess of my house... I look on the internet and I see that there are all kinds of things I can do. Every night I should have a routine and I should make sure that I always do one load of washing and one dishwasher and I should do this and I never leave a room empty-handed. I should always, you know, honestly. The problem is these things. Number one, children. Now, I only have one But if you see in this slide, there's about nine drink bottles for that one child, and none of them can go in the dishwasher. If you have more than one child, then I don't think it's ever going to be possible for you to have a clean house. Second, life is really full. If I had time to have my routine of cleaning my home, I would. 
but both of us work full time. We've got the blessing of being able to see other people like socially. We're able to go on uh, holidays, all kinds of great, amazing things that fill the diary. It's a blessing. But it does mean that the house just cannot compete. And thirdly, too much stuff coming in from outside, maybe being delivered by the postman, not letters. If It's not a closed system, right? So even if you got it to a point where you could keep it clean, like, you know, where it was clean, stuff just comes in from outside. Yes, dirt, but also clothes and new things and books. Um, thank goodness we don't buy DVDs anymore. Too much stuff coming in from outside. Now, you don't have to have kids or even uh, be working full-time to appreciate that these are the challenges in keeping a clean house, stopping it from being messy. The thing is, they're actually the same things that create a messy church. Bear with me. The church in Corinth had been uh, created through God's grace, but was led in its early stages by Paul. This is a map of his second missionary journey. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at um, Acts 16, where Paul met a bunch of different people that became Christians, uh, including Lydia. And then he goes on to Acts 17, where he's in Athens. And you, if you're familiar with uh, talks on evangelism, you might know that one. He's preaching in the Areopagus, and he says to the people, uh, you even worship an unknown God. Well, let me declare to you the God that you worship. That's in Athens, and then he moves to Corinth. They're really close by each other, you can see. Corinth is on a, is on a little strip of land called an isthmus. Isthmus. <laughs> Thanks, Greeks. That's hard to say for us. Uh, and it was a port city. We read in Acts 18 that Paul was working there as a tent maker with people that you might have um, heard of called Priscilla and Aquila. And uh, they were in this port city mending people's tents, uh, creating new wares to sell, to provide finance for them to live, whilst Paul, in verse 4, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. In the intervening verses there, we find that Paul actually encounters a lot of opposition, particularly from the Jews in Corinth, but not just from them. And uh, he is really quite discouraged. But the Lord says to him, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, I am with you, no one's going to attack you, because I have many people in this city and so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. This is around 50, maybe, AD. And it's incredible that uh, Jesus would say to Paul, I have many people in this city, because it was the last place 
you would expect to find a church. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. So Paul moved on from Corinth to Ephesus after that year and a half. But not before there'd been a significant opposition, particularly around the synagogue and his practice there. And some people were beaten, including a gentleman called Sosthenes. Now, some of you were still having your coffee, so you might not recognise the name Sosthenes, but if you caught the start of our reading, Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, who is beaten in chapter 18 of Acts, greets the people with Paul at the start of 1 Corinthians. All that mess that was happening has now seen fruit and Sosthenes has become a believer. But the mess remains and the reports have come in. I do apologise, I've, I've flicked through just to make it sound a bit more coherent. The reports have come in. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Paul's in Ephesus, but he's receiving letters. People are dobbing, or they are seeking counsel. Chloe's household, uh, an influential leading household in the church, have contacted Paul and said, you will not believe what's going on. We need your help. Chapter 5, again, we see this word reported. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Maybe that's coming from Chloe. Maybe that's from other reports as well. And then in chapter 7, you can see he's either addressing this letter from Chloe or other communication from the church. Now for the matters you wrote about. So the reports have come in and the verdict, as I said before, is mess. This is the list that I read out as we were finding the slides. But the reason is threefold. They are children in the faith. Phoebe was reading my slides and she said, what's the problem with having children in the church? And then she said, oh, you mean they were immature. That's right. So the church themselves were children in the faith. They were new. Their spiritual life was really full. They had so much to do and so many toys to play with as newly filled believers with the Holy Spirit, that behaviour was just going by the wayside. And finally, there was too much stuff coming in from outside. So this church is young. Paul has been there for 18 months, as I said, and then he's gone. They don't have... This abound book of the New Testament and Old Testament, they don't have the Gospels written out for them. They don't have the letters of the apostles. This is the time when those things are being written. And so all they have is what they have learnt during these 18 months from Paul, the apostolic teaching that they are trying to put into practice and their experience of God bringing them to salvation and working in their midst. 
There are other leaders that have come in that have worked alongside Paul, Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos and others. But really, they are so young. But not just young, immature. And so in chapter 3, which Chantel will be speaking to us from in a couple of weeks, he says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. There was an immaturity of spirit in the place, and part of it was because they were just young in the faith. But part of it was because they had so many toys to play with. So their spiritual life was really full. In 1 Corinthians 1, 4-9, we see the way in which they have been enriched in every way. So Paul says, in him you've been enriched with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. You do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Jesus had said, I have many people in this city. And Jesus took the initiative by his grace to bring faith in those people and to enrich them. They actually found that in a place that valued expedience and wisdom, power and status, that suddenly they had all these resources from outside from the Holy Spirit, which gave them a lot of what they wanted. They could speak well. They could speak of the things of God. When we get to chapters 12 to 14, you will see that particularly they were speaking not only in other languages but also prophetic words, things that were coming from God. They found outside resources were filling their lives. They could pray for others and people were healed. They could now use their different gifts in the church that God had given them to see things happen. They were full. Just like the day of Pentecost, they had received the Holy Spirit in power because of the grace of God in Christ. And Paul says, you're not only enriched now, you actually are also being held to the day of Christ Jesus' return. You are full. You are enriched You don't lack anything now, and you won't lack anything in the future. And so when you've got a lot of toys to play with, things get really messy. When you're excited, I don't know if you know of the the preacher John Wimber, uh, who was instrumental in the vineyard movement, and he used to say about ministry in the church, everyone gets to play. That's what it means for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on all people. Everyone gets to play. But that can be really, really messy. And finally, 
There was too much stuff coming in from outside. Now, as I said to you, Corinth was on this little isthmus, this little strip of land connecting uh, those two, connecting Greece, Athens, and then this more peninsula part here. Um, And it was a port city because there was no other place down the bottom of that map there to bring your boat, your ship, into harbour. So if you were wanting to travel from over from Ephesus uh, to the Adriatic or wherever you wanted to go, actually it was far safer to head into Corinth and, would you believe it, either unload your ship and uh, load your cargo onto another ship on the other side. We're talking like a couple of kilometres of land. Um, or they actually had uh, the ability to roll... Um, ships of a certain size on logs across the land and then get them into the water on the other side. So I'll show you a picture here of what um, they do now. This exists now um, and they couldn't make this happen in that time but they've now built a canal. It's such a useful part of that region for sailing, shipping, that um, they now can just... What do you do with a ship? Sail. Sail all the way through. I'm like, drive? No, that's not it. Sail all the way through. But in that time, it was a young city, a useful city, and a very popular city. Uh, In the second century BC, a couple of hundred years before Jesus was born, the city had been destroyed. It was a site of an uprising against the Romans. They came down really hard. It was pretty much flattened. But only a hundred years or so later, it was absolutely bustling. It was pumping. It was the place to be. And that is because... It was so useful. And so you can imagine it being like, I sort of think like the gold fields in a way. There's nothing there and then suddenly there's a huge reason for everyone to be there to make their fortune. It's the most useful and prosperous place around. And so everyone came in and you didn't have to be in the shipping business or even tent making, there's so many things that sailors in a port need. Um, Let the reader understand. There are lots of things you can do to make money in a place of commerce and uh, merchant navy type stuff. But it also was... Uh, the site of some uh, Olympics-types games called the Isthmian Games. And so uh, they'd lost it, and I think about this like the Grand Prix, they'd kind of lost it to another region, and then by 40 AD they got it back, right? Whoever it was as their premier at that time did some backroom deals, and uh, they got the games back. And so this is really at Paul's time, This place was heaving. I mean, they talked, you know, the sort of 80,000 to a million people there. You know, historical figures are hard to pin down. 
Um, but this is a place of commerce, entertainment, and deep competition. So not only do you see that in the games, but this is the place where people come to make their fortune. There's no landed gentry. It's a young place, and so anything goes. You create your own culture, and that culture is how do we get to the top, and what deals can we make to ensure that we stay there? Can we get patronage? Can we kind of hook ourselves on to someone else who's really influential? Uh, can we set up our own sort of faction so that we scratch each other's backs, get the Isthmian Games back, all those things, and get what we need financially to then feel like we have freedom to fulfill all of our desires? And so there was also a temple to the goddess of love, of course, Aphrodite. And uh, the goddess of love had servants at the temple who helped you find love for a price. This was a place where every desire could be met. It was proverbially known as an immoral, licentious, anything goes. People used to say to Corinthianize, which meant to live however you liked and quite immorally. And so when God says... I have people in this city. I'm making a church in this city. These are the people. Actually, it's incredible and amazing that there is a church there. And the mess, ha, is pretty understandable. The church has been brought out of this culture, this dog-eat-dog do whatever you can do to get to the top and fulfill every desire. And so that comes into the church. We're going to see all of those aspects of their culture hit up against the gospel and what it means to behave as God's people as well as to receive God's gifts. But he starts in chapter 1 with this division. Now, I don't need to go too much into it because it continues in 2, 3, and 4. But you can see the way in which this jostling for position, this desire for status, and this idea of patronage and political tribes or factions has come into the church. Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels or divisions in verse 10, which is a word that we, um, come, we, we get schism from. Divisions is schismata. There are splits. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Kephas. And another says, I follow Christ. There's always that person. 
I don't need leaders, I just have Jesus. That's a, um, so there are divisions here. But it's not about doctrine. Because if it was about doctrine, Paul is never afraid to say, no, follow my doctrine. Follow me. What I have taught you, I have received from the Lord. But instead here, he says, no, 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 no. Don't even worry about if you were baptized by me. This is not a place for tribal divisions. Christ is not divided. And Paul was not crucified for you. And when you were baptized, even if you were baptized by me, you weren't baptized into my name. And you can tell that he is um, dictating this letter because he writes a bit, or he doesn't have a computer, right, that he can go back. He writes, oh, I only did these guys. Oh, wait, hang on. Can you add that I also did the household of Stephanus? Uh, I can't remember if there was anyone else. Christ did not send me to baptise, even though Jesus did tell us to baptise believers. But Paul is saying this is not a matter of who brought you into the faith. This is a matter of the faith in which you now stand, the grace of God which has been given to you by the cross of Christ. It didn't come from Apollos' wisdom, and he had a lot. It didn't come from Paul's preaching, teaching. It didn't come even with his uh, apostolic power uh, that kind of did something in his name. No, it came through the cross of Christ. So this messy church was because they were so young, children in the faith but immature too, because they had so many toys to play with. Their spiritual life was really full. But there was too much stuff coming in from outside. Now, before we close with just a tiny amount of time on the rest of this chapter, which uh, we could do another five sermons on, it's so rich. I want us to pause and think about how we think of ourselves when we come to this passage. Do we think, oh, well, this is going to be all right. We're not particularly messy here at Deep Creek. We're doing pretty well, actually, feeling pretty, pretty proud of ourselves. You know, we don't say, I follow so-and-so or I follow so-and-so. The reason they were messy is because, number one, they had children in the faith. If we're not messy, we need to ask ourselves, have we got people who are new in the faith amongst us? Have we got babes in Christ who are learning, who are making mistakes? Are we allowing people to make mistakes? Does everyone get to play? That's the first question we need to ask ourselves if we're not messy. Second question is, is our spiritual life very full? Do we have a lot of toys to play with? Because it's actually quite easy to make a very 
orderly looking, extremely well-behaved church. The Church of England has been doing it for centuries. Without there being the fullness of experience of what God has for us, without there actually being a surrender to the gifts that God is desiring to give to his church, it is easy to look clean when there is nothing going on. And so we need to ask ourselves before we're proud that we're not messy, if we're not. Have we got people who are new in the faith here? Is our spiritual life full? And then I can guarantee you that there will be stuff coming in from the outside. And if we don't think there is, it's because we've also done that fantastic Church of England thing, that Anglican thing, and just kept it under the surface. We haven't shown it. We haven't talked about it, but it will be there. And so as we go through 1 Corinthians, we have to ask ourselves, where is the mess? What have I brought from the outside? What have we all brought? What does our culture bring into the church? Comfort for one, consumerism for another, freedom, rights, all kinds of stuff. What have we brought? And it might be different for each of us, depending on our generation, depending on our ethnic background, all kinds of things. What have I brought? And is there mess under the surface? And you're going to get to the point, I think, if you face those things where you say, well, I just don't know where to begin. Maybe that's why I took those photos. Please help me. Where do I begin? Get the dog off the bed for the start. How to start cleaning up when you don't know where to start. So where does Paul start his whole letter? It's going to take us through these 16 weeks until Christmas is nearly here. He starts at the cross. And that seems like the strangest place to start for a group of new Christians who are full and excited and experiencing wisdom and power from God, reigning victorious in everything that they've been given. And Paul says, no. How did you receive this richness? But through the weakest, most offensive foolish, powerless thing that God could do. You are enriched because Christ was completely impoverished on the cross. The cross of Christ is what has brought you together. The cross of Christ is now the power of God for you. The Jews in Corinth demanded signs And the Greeks or the Gentiles looked for wisdom, what sounded expedient, what would get them to where they wanted to go and sounded amazing. The cross doesn't sound like that. How could God, the Messiah, 
die a criminal's death? How could that be the thing that creates a community that will actually flourish with love and life and riches? But it is. The cross might seem like foolishness if you're in a city that says power and freedom and fortune is everything. But it is the only way to start and continue and end the Christian life. To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, anyone amongst us, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. In just a moment, uh, we're going to sing again. And I'm sure you'll agree that there's so much more richness about the cross there, and we'll do some of it next week. But I want us to just start this letter with the cross. You've seen the mess. You know how messy your house is, but you also face the mess of your soul and your church and the church around the world and the church through church history. It's a mess. And the only way we are going to be able to receive Paul's instruction for cleaning up the mess is if we start with the cross. God gave everything for us. Any pride, any desire for power, any seeking to reach the top, it's all turned upside down by the cross. And God's desire is for this community to be a community that is turned upside down by the cross. To surrender to a God who would give himself on the cross. To find there the power of God and the wisdom of God. So as the band comes up, just take a few moments. See yourself at the cross. cross is where we begin, where we continue, and where we end, because it is what saves us. So let's stand and sing re-surrender to the work that God is doing in us. Mm-hmm.